Good morning. Open up to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. If you're doing that, let me ask you a question. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. Here's my question. Who or what are your greatest enemies? Who or what are your greatest enemies? There might be lots of ways you may want to answer that question. Maybe someone specific pops into your mind. Uh, You know, there's been a huge rift in a relationship of yours, or maybe an intense rivalry, or someone who has greatly harmed you. Or maybe as you hear that question, you feel sheepish. It feels wrong to have an enemy. I don't have enemies. That question makes me feel uncomfortable. Maybe your mind gets more structural or global. Maybe you're thinking about a particular nation or a certain form of government that is evil. My My sister recently told me that as a Michigan State Spartan, she finds University of Michigan Wolverines, she would call them her enemies. Well, you know, I'm one of them, Karsha. But are these really our greatest enemies? And at the very bottom of things is that one person in your life that so irks you, is she really your greatest enemy? Let's set aside our own personal evaluation for a moment. How would the Bible answer this question? I want you to hear from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. We're going to be quoting a lot from the Apostle Paul this morning. Here's here's a little bit of a start. Excuse me. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. Listen, friends, your greatest enemy isn't that team up north or that one guy in your family or your workplace rivalry or big Eva or neo-Marxism, or fascism, your greatest enemies are the devil and death. The good news, of course, of Christmas is that Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to destroy our two greatest enemies. I want to show you this from our passage. Let's read together now. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Hear God's word. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. We're in the middle of a series. This is actually week three, and our series is called Four Reasons of Christmas or Four Reasons for Christmas. The first reason you'll recall uh, is that the Son of God became human to restore God's original intention to humanity. The second reason from last week is the Son of God became human to make us God's 
children, God's sons and daughters. Today, here's reason number three, and it's also our main point. You'll see it on your screen. The Son of God became a human so that he can destroy our greatest enemies, the devil and death. Now, the logic of this passage is so um, helpfully clear. Notice first, Jesus shares flesh and blood with the children of God. This is verse 14. And so, first of all, we must acknowledge, this is foundational, Jesus was fully a man. He slept, and he ate, and he cried, and he hurt, and he got tired. He was born through a birth canal like every person in this room. He was born of a woman. He was born in a manger. He was born within human history. John's gospel says it this way in John chapter 1, the word, the logos, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus has always been fully God. But 2,000 years ago, within human history, he took on flesh and blood. Again, this is a core theological truth. Jesus had to become a human in order to represent humans. This is explained in Chapter 2, verse 16. Notice that verse with me. Did Jesus set out on a plan to save angels? No, of course not. He set out on a plan to save you and me, the offspring of Abraham. So Jesus became flesh and blood because he was out to help. He was out to save flesh and blood. And how does he help? How does he save us? Look at the next few words. It says, so that through his death, For what purpose did Jesus take on flesh and blood? He became a human in order to die as a human. There's no sugarcoating this. Sometimes we want to just kind of focus on Jesus and and him being a little baby in a manger. But we have to, we have to move through his life, through his story, and get to the cross. That's what the author of Hebrews does as well. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without Jesus first being born, yes, but then also going to the cross. So what we see here in our passage is the writer of Hebrews offers up two compelling reasons why Jesus took on flesh and blood and then died. I want to give those to you. Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? First of all, to destroy the devil. To destroy the devil. I want you to carefully look at this verse, verse 14. The logic here again is very clear. It's a really punchy statement. Jesus took on flesh so that through his death, he might destroy the devil. 1 John 3, 8 says something very similar. It says the reason the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so, friends, the, the first enemy that, that we are to consider, according to the writer of Hebrews, is the devil. He is our enemy. He is our adversary. Now, why is that the case? Well, it all began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? God put Adam and Eve in the garden. One of the commands he gave Adam and Eve is to rule over every beast, the field. They failed to do just that. Satan, as a serpent, came and wiggled his way between God and Adam and Eve. He deceived them. He twisted God's words and intentions. He belittled God. Friends, these are the works of Satan the things he does even today in our lives. And then, of course, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They started to follow the path of Satan. And this resulted in death and sin entering 
the world. Paul says it this way, and you heard it before from Pastor Ryan. It's from Romans. The wages of sin is what? Death. And this makes sense of what we see in verse 14, which says that Satan is the one holding the power of death. Now, what does that mean, that Satan holds the power of death? It doesn't mean that Satan has the ultimate power and that he controls death. According to 1 Samuel chapter 2, God is the being. He is the one who gives life and takes life away. So Satan only has the power of death in the sense that he influences the thing that causes death. What is that thing that causes death? It's sin. So Satan is, is, is behind the presence and, and the kind of the forcefulness of sin in our lives, which of course leads to death. Paul in Ephesians calls Satan the ruler of the power of the air. Satan has real authority and real power on this earth. He wields real death-inflicting power in two ways. And both relate to our sin, which again, he influences. Not only does our sin require death as punishment, our sin also results in death-like consequences. And just think with me for a minute, how many famous artists and musicians, whether it's Van Gogh, you know, centuries ago, or whether it's Kurt Cobain, you know, just several decades ago, how many famous artists and musicians over the centuries have been deceived by the devil, believing his lies? only to end up dead by way of drugs and suicide and other reasons, of course. This illustrates the power Satan has over death. His influence is deadly in every way. Thus, we must take Satan and his minions and his powers seriously. And you know, sometimes we don't. Think with me, friends. How much in the past week have you thought about Satan? What about the past month? How much have you talked about Satan? I'm not suggesting we dwell and obsess and become unnerved by Satan's existence, but I am guessing most of us here are probably on the other end of that spectrum. We live as if the war we fight is against our weight or some person or some sports team or some, some form of flesh and blood rather than against Satan. I want you to listen here to the New Testament just avalanche of teaching of, uh, about Satan. I'm not going to read every passage, but here's a sampling. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why, Peter? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. John chapter 8, verse 44, Satan is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12, verse 17, then the dragon, that's Satan, became furious with the woman, who represents God's people, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Make no mistake, friends. Satan is our real enemy. He's not make-believe like Sauron or Voldemort. You know, if you're on team Jesus, if you've identified yourself with Christ and his people in baptism, if you continue to identify yourself with Christ and his people through the Lord's Supper, these are marks 
marks of the church, marks that mark off Christians as real Christians. If that's you, if you're on team Jesus, you are making yourself a bigger target for Satan. What's he trying to do? What's he trying to do to us? His aim is nothing short of the complete destruction of God's church. He wants to destroy your faith when trials come. He wants to divide the church when disagreements arise. He wants to put cracks in your marriage. He wants to push you into tempting situations. He wants to deceive you into thinking that you are more important than you really are. He wants to twist someone else's words to seem more hurtful than intended. He he wants to introduce mistrust and suspicion and, and sometimes even hatred into your church relationships. Friends, there is an actual being who is attempting to do these things at Faith Church, each and every day. And listen, friends, he is awfully sneaky in his attacks on the church. He avoids direct assaults. He prefers deceit and misdirection and trickery. He's a schemer. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Trying to introduce seeds of doubt in our minds. So friends, this is for real. There are malevolent spiritual persons, powers, authorities that are actively trying to deceive you and deceive me. And where does the battle take place? Well, it takes place in the mind, in the realm of ideas. You know, ideas aren't neutral. Satan is trying to keep people under a tyranny of lies. What we believe is what we end up serving, what we order our lives around. And so if we serve, if we order our lives around lies, they will capture us, they will destroy us. And this is exactly Satan's ploy. He holds the power of deadly influences. Modus operandi is deception. Which is why this little verse, chapter 2, verse 14, is just so amazing. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. It's Jesus' death that destroys Satan. It's his death that nullifies and neutralizes and temporalizes Satan's powerful works. What exactly does that mean, though? How does Jesus' death destroy Satan. Well, I think the Apostle Paul, again, is so helpful. This is a little verse in Colossians chapter 2, really, really helpful. Listen carefully. In Jesus' death, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that includes Satan, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Now, to properly understand Paul's thinking, we have to realize he's drawing from the Roman triumph that occurred typically after a great military battle. So the Roman general would lead a victory procession in the city, made up first, of of course, of his army, and then in the rear, the captors and the prisoners of war who were being led to the slaughter. Of course, there's glory for the general, and there's glory for the army, right? And utter shame for the captors in the back. And so Paul grabs a hold of this evocative picture, and he applies it in the spiritual realm. Jesus' death brings victory over Satan and his minions. And so, yes, Satan today has real power. He deploys real demons to hurt God's church. 
But folks, this is not a yin-yang sort of universe, you know? It's not like Star Wars where there must be a balance, you know, to the force, uh, evenly matched light and dark. I know it often looks like Satan has the upper hand. Maybe even today as you think about global challenges and wars, or as you think about your own fears and insecurities and struggles, as you are struggling perhaps with trials, you feel this acutely. Satan seems to be winning. He seems to be happen, having the upper hand. But remember, nowhere did it look like this more than that day when Jesus, an innocent man, hung on a cross. It surely looked like evil triumphed on that day. It looked like Satan dis disarmed and disgraced Jesus. And he's got weapons against us, right? He's got our own guilt, and he uses it to condemn us and push us around and make us feel discouraged. But friends, when Jesus took that guilt upon himself on the cross, Satan is the one who stood empty-handed. In the very place where Satan thought he outmaneuvered God, God outmaneuvers him, making a fool out of Satan, turning what looks like Satan's triumph into the very means of his defeat. What a stunning plan filled with delicious irony, right? And it's a plan that was prophesied back in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's the passage we started with, right? So, so Satan's going to strike the heel of, of the woman's seed, but, but the woman's seed, of course, is a prophecy about Jesus. He's going to crush the head of Satan. Where did that happen? It happened on the cross. And today, friends, we can choose to ignore the daily spiritual battle for our minds and affections, to ignore the place where Satan presses in with force and cunning. We can choose to focus so much on this world and, and Satan's empty promises. We can look to other things to fill us up and solve our problems and give us a false sense of victory. We can fight the wrong kinds of flesh and blood battles. Or we can rest in God's victory over Satan through Jesus's death. Why try to find some form of victory or security elsewhere when we can join in God's great triumph with our strong general in the lead and our spiritual enemies in the rear, disarmed and disgraced, being led to their eternal slaughter? For it is promised the people of God in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Listen to this. The devil who deceives God's church will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus has already won the victory. Yes, Satan is in his death throes. He's thrashing about. He's impacting our lives. He's impacting this world. But we can have confidence as we put on Christ's armor. Do you remember that passage in Ephesians chapter 6? Stand strong, stand firm, put on, strap on the armor of God. You can look at that passage this afternoon. Listen, friends, our role is to stand still in Christ's already won victory, not to try to attain a new victory. Yes, we are called to resist and stand firm, First Peter 5, Ephesians 6, against the devil who continues to prowl around devouring Christians. But this resistance is mainly a battle in our minds, not in exorcisms and praying down spiritual strongholds. So practically, what does it mean, just very quickly, briefly, what does it mean to put on the armor of God and stand still in Christ's victory? Here's what it means. It means to resist the lies of Satan 
with the truths of the gospel. What does it mean to strap on the armor of God? As you wake up Monday morning and you're preparing for kind of battle, right? What does it mean to strap on the armor of God? It means to resist the lies of Satan. There's all kinds of lies, right? Cultural lies, personal lies, relational lies. There's all kinds of lies that infiltrate our minds. It's to resist those lies by applying specific truths about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return applying those truths about his life, death, resurrection, and return in the very places you and I are tempted to believe lies. Very quickly, that is what it means to put on the armor of God. I'd encourage you to do that this week. We have victory in Christ. We've got armor to put on, which is actually his armor according to the book of Isaiah. He's used it. He's won the victory, and he shares his armor with us. And so, strap on that armor. Resist the lies of Satan with the truths of the gospel. Second reason, our second point. Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? Secondly, to free us from death. Not only does Jesus, through his death, destroy the devil, he also destroys death. And thus, he frees us, notice in verse 15, from the fear of death. The fear of death. The fear of death is a real thing. It's a universal thing, isn't it? All of our lives are, as Mike Mason has suggested, like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim. Why do we fear death? There's lots of reasons. The fear of pain, the fear of separation from what we know and, of course, from our loved ones. The fear of the unknown launching our vessel on an uncharted sea the fear of everlasting punishment. Death is coming to us all. Unless Christ comes back first, it's a fact of life, like our need for food and oxygen. On one hand, death is a biological event. It marks off the end of a heart beating and lungs breathing and a brain thinking. But we know it's much more than just that. It's really the final culmination of the slow process of entropy, kind of this gradual decline of everything that is organic. You know, there's also a sense in which death spreads its poison through everything we enjoy, because nothing we enjoy is ours to keep. Time passes. Things change. Eventually, everyone loses who and what we love. Several weeks ago, this is um, men's retreat weekend, um, we were playing a game and it was taught by our, our speaker, it's called flag football. There's a moment in time, uh, very, you know, just vivid for me, uh, when the ball was coming my way and I was excited, I'm like, I think I can, you know, I can catch that ball, like, I got it. So I caught the ball, I ended up kind of falling to the ground and, and then I started to rise and, and all I could feel was pain. And I was like, what is wrong with my body? You know? And fast forward a couple of weeks, uh, Jenny and our, our family, we were in Michigan with my mom, and we were just kind of hanging out. And, uh, you know, I was sitting down, and Jenny was kind of standing over me, and she looks over, and she's like, hey, uh, I think your hair is thinning a little bit. And I was like, how dare you? And so she, like, takes a picture, and she sends it, you know, so I'm looking, like. <laughs> My body 
isn't once or isn't what it once was, you know. And I've uh, this is going to surprise I know many of you, but never been a specimen of athletic stature and prowess. Um, but I had more to give five years ago. Okay. I don't share this to give you more material to mock me with. I share because this is why we fear death. It's not just death itself. It's the long, slow fade towards death. And what's fascinating is how our broader culture tries to mitigate death. Laura Winner says this, quote, During the last century, Americans have embraced an unprecedented denial of death, an unprecedented evasion of death. How so? We just, don't, we just don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to acknowledge death. We are afraid of death. For example, we try to soften the effects of aging through special skin care and vitamins and hair loss treatments and medical technology and nutrition and exercise, and plastic surgery. Now, some of these things are okay. I'm not trying to say these are all evil or sinful things, but it's just interesting to see that there's billion-dollar industries that have kind of erupted in our culture based on essentially trying to slow down the effects of death. Heaven forbid we actually start getting old. We've removed death from our homes now it's in the hospitals and the hospice care units. We've separated ourselves from death. We don't allow people to say they're dying. No, they're battling illness. We encourage the sick to fight death, but not to prepare for it. Why do we do this? Because we are afraid of death. Our culture doesn't know how to deal with the problem of death. Our culture attempts as best as it can to make us feel superficially, of course, invincible. But we're not. Death makes a statement about each of us. You're not so great and important that you can avoid me. If nothing else, death is one of God's greatest humbling tools. But of course, unfortunately, the world isn't being humbled by it. So in view of all this, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Let me read this to you again. So, now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Listen, friends, as Christians, we don't need to avoid death. We don't need to mitigate death. We can be freed from the fear of death and its effects. Why? Because when Jesus died and rose again, he defeated death. I'm going to say that again. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he defeated death. Listen again, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruits. Guess who the next crop is? All who are in Christ. Paul continues, for since death came through a man, he's talking about Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, that's Jesus. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Do you hear that? We've had some death in our church recently. 
as you know. And over the last 18 months, 24 months or so, it has been heavy. It, was, it has been painful. It has been disorienting. And we, your church family, we want you to know we remember you. We, we haven't forgotten you, Irma and Scott and Dave and Carol and Riona and others. We haven't forgotten you. This morning, I want to put before you this sweet promise of future resurrection. Those who are in Christ will be, will be made alive. Those who are in Christ will be made alive. Made alive. This is a promise from our God. We need not fear death because listen to what Jesus commands us in Revelation chapter 1. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Isn't that great? We have great hope, not in plastic surgery and medical technology and radiation and vitamins, but in Christ who will raise us up and give us, get this, perfect new bodies, and he will put us on a new earth. Jesus offers eternal life, and that's a deathless life. It's a life with a supreme joy that won't ever be tainted by any kind of sorrow. And this is why Paul says, as what we read together earlier, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Christians have hope because of Christ. But this doesn't mean we don't grieve. We just don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve with hope. There's a real shock when we feel, you know, when people die around us, especially those who are close to us, there is a real shock, isn't there? Those whose lives were stretching out before them, perhaps with many plans and dreams and hopes and maybe children and grandchildren and so forth, there's a real shock we feel. And this shock, according to Owen Strand, is a theological shock. We are being reminded that humanity is still in Adam. Our lives are but a vapor. We are mere specks of dust. And the strong and the beautiful and the educated and the impressive and everyone else, everyone else's lives, they, they live or we live with death's sword hanging over them at all times. We often pretend like this isn't true, that life in Adam is just fine. And we get a phone call and we hear about someone who dies. Friends, death is not neutral. Death is our enemy, not our friend. It is inescapably terrible because it is an evil interruption. It reminds us that this life is not the way it's supposed to be. It reminds us that this life is not, um, that, that death is not a part of the normal life that God originally intended. And so today, death becomes for us a trumpet blast from the heavens to flee Sodom and to run to Jesus while there is still time. Death is a warning. It is an urgent call, a call to take God seriously and to throw ourselves on the mercies of God. 
So friends, I just wonder, have you done that? Have you thrown yourself on the mercies of Christ? Outside of faith in Christ, your future is bleak. Physical death will mean spiritual death, which is separation from God and eternal punishment in hell. But with Christ, if you trust in him and repent of your sins, you can have eternal life. Listen, friends, I... um, I miss my dad. He died in 2009 of a heart attack. And I would imagine you miss someone too. During these holidays, for some of you, it will be the first attempt to celebrate Jesus' birth while that particular chair sits empty at the Christmas dinner table. I remember those days. It's been 14 years now for me. I still feel that ache I feel awkward sitting at the head of my mom's table, cutting the turkey, saying the prayer, leading the conversation. Someone is missing. But my hope is in Jesus who has defeated death. My hope is that while my children will never meet my dad in this life, They will, if they are in Christ, they will meet him in the next life. And while I knew him as a mixed bag, like all of us, of course, right, they will know him only as God originally intended him to be. And that thought makes me smile. You see, to aging bones, the sting of death, the folly of death, Christmas is the perfect tonic, isn't it? The world throws out its solutions to alleviate, to cover up our fear of death. But only Christmas, only Christmas, which tells the story of Jesus who took on flesh and blood and died and was raised again. Only Christmas rewrites the story of Adam, providing the only solution to Adam's folly and ours. It's only this story that tells of a world that is unlike Narnia, a world that is always Christmas and never winter. And you know what our job is, friends, this Christmas season? It's to tell the story of Christmas right in the midst of the heartache. It's to feel that theological shock and then to speak a word about Christ. Don't be afraid of getting close to death. Don't sanitize it. Move towards it with a great hope of Christmas. Preach the gospel of the Son of God who came to defeat finally and forever the devil and death. Go tell that on the mountain. What does this look like? How can we do this? Well, kind of like what the Phillips community group did. This is something they did right about this time last year. It would be Jamie Phillips' last Christmas Though no one knew at the time, their community group decided to bless Scott and Jamie with Christmas carols. And so they huddled together in their garage as Jamie enjoyed the songs of Christmas in the doorway. It was cold. It was probably uncomfortable. But the music of Christmas echoed. I wasn't there. Uh, I saw a picture which brought tears to my eyes. 
Because right there in that garage, we see the great juxtaposition of the Christian life. Jamie's body slowly fading away due to her life in Adam. And a soul triumphantly clinging to her spiritual bounty due to her life in Christ. In that cold garage, those dear saints brought this truth to Jamie right in the midst of heartache. They joyfully sang together of the little baby who would die to save her. Let me just encourage you to do the same. Do the same. Tell the story of Christmas right in the middle of heartache. I want to close by reading together the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's do that together. You'll see it on your screen as you now read the underlying portions with me. So church, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's take a moment to ponder this passage.